I'll start off with a question this morning. How many of you, you don't have to answer, you can, I guess, but how many of you have ever been in the place in life where you feel unwanted, when you feel like you're an outcast? People have looked at you and for whatever reason have decided that you weren't worthy of them. I'm sure every, every one of us maybe uh, has at some point in our lives felt this feeling of being ostracized by people around us. And it might have been for a lot of different reasons. Uh, I remember in gym class, you know, this is a classic one, you know, the person who always gets picked last. I don't know if they even do picks anymore because we don't want to hurt self-esteem. I don't know. But what I do know is when I was a kid, they did picks. And I was, this might come as a shock, I was always a little bit of a chubby kid. And uh, I know you'd never guess that now. Um, but as a chubby kid, there was many times that I would get chosen last at gym class. And um, I always felt like an outcast. I felt like nobody wanted me to be on the team. And usually that pushed me to play even harder. Um, it happened at baseball camp. I went to baseball camp one summer and they picked teams and nobody knew anybody really. But they could, so they were just judging it on what people looked like. And I was the last one chosen for our baseball team and I remember thinking when that happened how upset I was and I remember the thought of I'm going to show them and uh, sure enough our team made it to the finals and I just got to say this maybe this isn't humble but it's the one thing in my life that I've done that's impressive Uh, (laughs) at my last at bat I hit a three run homer to win the game for our team you know yeah I know I was like I don't know 11, I don't even, but I remember the feeling, the whole point of that is not that I hit a home run, although, you know, I probably shouldn't have shared that part, but I did. Um, no, the whole, the whole point is, uh, there are times in life where we are, that we feel like we are left out, and maybe you're not one of those people, maybe you've been one of those popular people throughout your life that has never felt left out, but I, I highly doubt there's ever been a moment where you thought, oh yeah, I, I feel left out, all of us have had at least a moment that we feel like almost there's no hope, that nobody wants to be around us. There's uh, lots of times where that'll happen in our life. And it can get depressing. It can get tough. Maybe you're in that place right now. Maybe you just, wherever you are in your life, you just feel like an outcast. Maybe it's at work and, and, uh, and there's some, you're, you're different and so people don't really want to hang out with you at work. Or maybe it's, a, uh, it's just in whatever circle you're running in, for whatever reason, it feels like you're the outcast. Maybe sometimes, unfortunately, you even feel that way right here at church. And you feel like nobody really, really wants to dive into your life and you feel left out. You feel like an outcast. You, you feel like there's no hope for you. Well, today as we go to Mark chapter 7, there's a message that is so strong here for anyone who feels that way that you might be left out by the whole world. Everybody may turn their back on you, but Jesus is the servant king who has come to include you. To include you in his ministry, in his life, in what he is doing. He's not here to create outcasts. He is not here to look at people as subhuman or to look at people as being second class. Jesus looks at people and loves them all and gives them the opportunity to trust Him 
and he includes those who other people would not include. But also, if you're here today and maybe you're not the one that's always finding yourself to feel out like the outcast, maybe you're the one that in the past, or even now, you are participating in making someone else feel that way. Today, I want to first of all look at Jesus as the one who includes people, who loves and cares for people even when others won't. But I also want to present that not only as an encouragement, but also as a challenge. Because if Jesus included all people, didn't matter their background, didn't matter what other people thought, if Jesus is willing to include those people, then we should be willing to include them in our lives as well. And so with both of those, we're going to see what Jesus does here in Mark chapter 7. That was a little bit of a preview. Before we get there, let's go back and do some review. We can go through this pretty quickly. I know many of you have been with us as we've been going through Mark. But so far through Mark, we've seen that Jesus is the suffering servant king who is truly God and truly man at the same time. We've seen that the authority that Jesus possessed as a result of this brought much opposition and pressure from enemies and even from followers. We see that in the, in the light of this opposition and pressure, Jesus teaches and demonstrates his kingship time and time and time again. And what he does and how he teaches and what he says, we see that Jesus is declaring himself as the Messiah King that has come. In this declaration, we see that he is followed by some who believe in what he's saying and then others reject him. So he is followed by some but rejected by others. As we continue to look and as we've looked at the last couple weeks, we see that Jesus is a provider for those who follow him. He is a provider. He provides for those who follow him. We've seen that time and time again, spiritually and physically, that he was providing that he cared enough for people, that he would provide for people. Then last week we also saw those who are rejecting him, he is confronting those who follow tradition. Confronting those who put tradition above following God rightly. That man-made rules and man-made laws and living in a way that is legalistic has replaced living in a way that loves Jesus. No doubt some of you right now are thinking in your mind, and, either, and some of you I know it's two different thoughts. One person's either thinking, I can't believe he's not wearing a tie today. The other people are thinking, thank goodness he's finally stopped wearing his ties. Um, I don't know which camp you might fall in. Uh, I will say this, that uh, it's hot today. But also, as I thought about last week's message, I thought, you know what, I don't need to wear a tie. Uh, If I need to wear a tie, then I'm adding something to Jesus and I don't need to do that. Now, that does not mean you won't see me in a tie again because I am very uncomfortable right now. Um, (laughs) But all that being said, Jesus confronts those who attach themselves to tradition, the things that people have set up, and they say, what we have set up is more important than what God has set up and we're going to make a fence around the law and we're going to make sure that we can do whatever we can to keep ourselves pure without understanding that we can't keep ourselves pure, the only person who can make us pure, clean, and holy is Jesus Christ himself. And that's where we've been so far in the book of Mark. And that's going to play into where we go now as we read Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 24. Mark 7, verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know Yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile 
a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast out the demon of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in a bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephratha, Ephratha, that is be opened. And his ears were opened and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf deaf hear and the mute speak. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread, the bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples and set them before the people, to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that, he said that these also should be set before them. And... And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Domanthia. All right. So where we find ourselves here in Mark chapter 7, we see right after this conversation that Jesus has had with the Pharisees and with the people around. And if you remember, just going back a little bit in in chapter 7, we already talked about it. But he was talking about tradition, and he said, look, it's not what comes from without that defiles you, it's, from, it's what comes from within. And he's really, in, and we're even told this in Mark, he's taking a shot at the dietary laws of, of Judaism. But it's not just the dietary laws, but it's the, it's the frivolous laws that have become too important to the Jews, where they feel like they have to obey these certain dietary restrictions, they have to obey these laws, and that's where they're going to find Uh, hope and help from God and Jesus says no it's what comes from within it's not by keeping away from those things and he what we're told in Mark is this is when Jesus declares that all foods are clean he's declaring that the law no longer is a bind on us keep that in context because what Jesus does next fits right into what we've been seeing after making this statement we see that Jesus takes his disciples and where does he go He goes to a Gentile region. He goes to Tyre and Sidon, coastal cities that were known to be Gentile and pagan. That's where he goes. Now we know that Jesus does not do things out of coincidence. Jesus is not just like, all right, I'm going to point to the map and we're going to go to some some place and some random place. Jesus obviously has a plan, but they're going to a Gentile region. 
I almost wonder, we're not told this, I wonder if his disciples are starting to wonder, why are we going out there? Why are we leaving uh, Israel? I don't know, but they're going away to a Gentile region. But we see part of the reason for this is it was another attempt to get away from the pressure. It was another attempt to get away from the pressure. He, he's been healing, he's been teaching. Pharisees are getting pretty heated, they're pretty angry with him. And so he once again, as we've seen throughout this book, wants to get away with his disciples to have some small group time, to have some refreshment, to have some time to just teach those who are closest to him and really just take a break. We know that's part of the reason that they go out, but I have to know, and we have to know, as Jesus is the sovereign king, that he knows that there's a divine appointment that's going to happen when they're there. And so we see that they are trying to get away from the pressure. They go to a Gentile region. And today we're going to see three events that while there in this Gentile region, Jesus shows his inclusion of Gentiles through three events. His inclusion of Gentile people. Let's stop there for a second. You guys, we need to understand that the Jews looked at the Messiah as the Messiah that would come, as the Jewish Messiah that would save Israel from its oppressors. And the Jewish Messiah would conquer the nations. That's what many Jews were looking for. That's what the, the, the traditionalists, that's what the, uh, that's what the religious leaders were looking for. A Messiah King who would come in throw off the shackles of oppression and take over the world so that Israel could be the nation that would rule the world. That is what people thought was coming. Now, as we've seen in Mark and we'll continue to see, Jesus' plan as Messiah is not to come and deliver from physical enemies, but to deliver from sin and death. And that's what he will do through his life and death here on the earth. And we know that that is Jesus' thought, but this is not the people's thought. And so where we find ourselves now is that Jesus is going to show that the Messiah is not just for the Jews. That the Messiah is not just coming to make the Jews a nation again. What Jesus is coming to do is set all people free. To minister to all people. To be the Messiah for all people. And we see that through these three events here in chapter 7 and 8. The first event we see is Jesus' inclusion of the Gentile woman. In verses 24 through 30, we're told about this Syrophoenician woman that shows up. Uh, they're trying to hide themselves, trying to rest, and she finds them. They've heard that he, the people around have heard that Jesus is there. Even Gentiles know the power he has. They've heard about it from Israel. And now she comes. And it's interesting to see this, that she's a Gentile woman, because Gentile women would have been one of the most despised groups by Jews. The only thing worse than being a Gentile uh, in a Jewish mind was to be a Gentile who is also a woman. That was society of the day. Not only was Greek society much like that, but also the Jewish society would be looking at women in a way that they are almost inferior. And so therefore, not only is this person that is coming to Jesus to ask him for something, not only is she a Gentile, Matthew, in his recollection of this, calls her a Canaanite woman. This is a woman from the area that they were supposed to conquer all those years ago that they never conquered. It's the enemy of enemies to the Jews. And not only that, she's a woman on top of this. This is a rabbi and a Jewish man would have had nothing to do with a Gentile woman, ever. It would be completely taboo. It would be shunned. It would be no one would do it except for Jesus. 
And as she is despised, she comes to him. And then we find this little interesting conversation, right? Jesus calls this woman a dog, right? So this is like, wow, Jesus. I don't know if I ought to use those words. But let, let's just look at it for a minute. This woman comes to him and we're told in Matthew that she's been following him and calling out. And, and, and really she's been persistent. She's been asking Jesus to cast this demon out. She's been asking for her daughter time and time again. And to this point, as we read in Matthew, if you want to look at the parallel passage over there, you will see that Jesus hasn't said anything to her. And then finally she gets to the point where she's here and she is approaching Jesus and asking him to cast out the demon of her daughter. And Jesus seems to dismiss her. But I would say, as we look at the context, really he was testing her. He wasn't dismissing her as much as he was testing her. So as she asked, this is what he says, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. This seems harsh. It seems tough. As we go over in Matthew, it'll tell us that what Jesus is talking about is the difference between the people of Israel being the children and the Gentiles who would be considered dogs. In fact, many of the Jewish people would call the Gentiles dogs. That was one of the derogatory terms that they would call them. But Jesus actually says something different. And if you don't know the nuances of of language, you would miss this completely. Jesus does not call her a scavenger dog. That's what most Jews would have called the Gentiles. A scavenger dog. We all know the mangy mutts that are kind of like roaming around that are just scavenging. right? That's that's their life. They're disgusting. They're they're dirty. They're, they're, They're the ones that will just destroy anything as long as they get what they want. That is how most Jews would see Gentiles. Interesting here, what the word that Jesus uses for dog is not that same word for a, one of those type of dogs, but the word he's using is for a domesticated puppy. Who doesn't love a domesticated puppy, right? Like, think of a puppy, they're cute, they're cuddly, but also of that day, domesticated animals would be around the table as the people would eat, and it was just part of what would happen as they reclined to eat crumbs that fell to the ground, just like many dogs would do today. The domesticated dogs would come in and get the crumbs. And that was an acceptable thing. And so Jesus, when he's talking to this woman, says, I think it, I really, you see it, it's a test. He's talking to her and he says, look, why should I take the children's bread, the Jews, these disciples that I have around me, and throw it to the puppies? I think in some ways, because we can take this, because then her response is this, uh, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She says that, and we can think, wow, she really outsmarted Jesus here. Like, he said something, and she turned it around on him. Wow, this woman's pretty shrewd. No, that's not the point here. I think Jesus is really baiting her, actually giving her this hope when he calls her this dog, this puppy, He's actually giving her hope and she gets the connection. She understands and she says, yes, I am just a puppy. I am just a dog, but I'm here and I'm waiting for the crumbs that fall from your table. She's humble enough to know that what Jesus can do for her, even though it might not be the first plan to go to the Jews, but that he has, he has something to give her. And she's willing to take even the littlest bit. And she passes this test. I believe Jesus says this to her knowing how she's going to respond. He's leading her on. She says this and she understands this. And what does Jesus do? He heals her daughter. But he does something he hasn't really done before. 
he heals her daughter from a distance. Most of the healings we've seen up to this point, he's had to either touch the person or be at least in the vicinity with the person. But Jesus here, you remember back and there was, there was people that were dying and he traveled with them to go heal the people. But Jesus shows his incredible power even now by healing from a great distance. And Jesus says, right now the demon has been cast out. Even as they were talking, the power of Jesus reaches across uh, space and, and, and it's able to heal the girl and he does. And he says why. For this statement you may go your way, the demon has left your daughter. It's all about faith. It's all about faith. The woman had faith that Jesus would do something for her, even if it was just the crumbs to the dogs. She knows she didn't, wasn't owed anything and yet Jesus included her in his ministry, included her daughter in his ministry. All the other Jews would have despised her, but Jesus made a point to meet with her, made a point to heal in a way that he hadn't healed before to show that his power was resting in the Gentiles as well. Jesus indeed includes even those who are despised. The second event we see is the inclusion of the deaf mute man. The deaf mute man in 731 through 37. So after this happens, they continue to travel. They're still in a Gentile area. They're still around the Decapolis, as we're told. This is ten cities that were Gentile. Now, no doubt there were some Jewish people that were around. Uh, This wasn't going to be all Gentiles, but definitely there would have been some. And it goes to reason that there's a good possibility that this man, even though we're not told, would be a Gentile, or at the very least, even if Jewish, he would have been out in the Gentile world. Once again, not someone that somebody would uh, associate with. We probably see that this man would have been deaf from early childhood. How do we know that? Well, if, you're deaf, if you become deaf later on in life, you still can speak pretty clearly because you kind of remember how to speak. But if you've been deaf since early childhood, you would not be able to speak. And it sounds like uh, some translations will say he was mute. Here it says he has a speech impediment. It's obvious that he can't form the words right and that he's deaf and he's talking in a way. And, and we've, you've met people who are deaf who have trouble talking and, and you know it's kind of intimidating when you're around it I, I'm not you know and you're like how do I how do I talk to this person how do I really interact with this person well the same would have been true even back then but it had been so much worse because many people thought if you were like this it was obviously because you're a sinner that is completely possessed and you're a lost soul you have no hope you see he would have been an outcast there's no question that this man would have been an outcast in the culture and society that he lived in he couldn't, people couldn't communicate with him. So if you can't communicate with him, they would shun them. He would be an outcast. Someone that most people wouldn't want to have anything to do with, let alone the Messiah who has come to save the world, to take some time out of his life and his ministry to minister to this man. And yet, he does. Jesus is begged by his friends to heal the man. So this man obviously had some friends. That's great. So he wasn't an outcast from everybody. I would assume and presume that maybe his friends probably were outcasts in their own right, for whatever reason that might be. But they bring him to Jesus. They know Jesus can heal him. And then once again, we see Jesus heal in a way he hasn't really healed before. See, Jesus is continuing to show here that even in Gentile nations, even with people who aren't Jews, that he is going to shower his power and give his ministry to them. Jesus heals him here with understanding and compassion. 
this is phenomenal to me as I was studying it this week. What Jesus does here. Jesus, we just saw him heal from a distance. He could have just looked at the man and said, okay, you can hear and speak. And he would have. Jesus could have done that. But he decides to be intentional in his inclusion of the deaf and mute man. And as he takes him aside, away from the confusion, away from the hustle and bustle, away from all the craziness, he takes him away. And what does Jesus do? He takes him aside. He puts his fingers into his ears. And then it's assumed, as, as he says, the spitting here. He, he spits on the tips of his fingers and touches the man's tongue. He looks up to heaven for the man to see. He sighs in sadness over the, the condition of the man. And then he says, be opened. As he says, be opened to the man, his ears are opened. Understand, the Ephrathah is the very first word this man hears for who knows how long. Be opened. But Jesus came to the man and ministered to him just how he needed it. He took him aside and then the thing, his, point, his fingers and touching his tongue and looking up to heaven. What is Jesus doing? He is reaching out to the deaf mute man where he needs to be reached and that is he's doing sign language things. That's really what he's doing. Like he's showing the man what's happening because he wants the man to understand that what's about to happen is miraculous. It's a miracle that comes from heaven. He looks up to heaven, he's touched him, and the deaf mute man knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is going to heal him. And the first words he hears is be opened. His ears were opened and his tongue was released. This is the incredible thing. Jesus not only said, okay, now you can hear, and then the guy learned how to talk after that. No, that's not the case. He, he completely healed his hearing, and then he also made it so that he could speak. Jesus completely restored the man. Many people would have walked by the deaf mute man and wouldn't have even given him the time of day. Probably all of his disciples would fall into that group. As Jewish men walking through a Gentile area, they would have not even given any attention. And yet Jesus, when it's brought to him, he takes the time. Like I said, he could have said, sure, go here. But Jesus takes the time to minister to him with understanding and compassion to show his inclusion of the outcasts. That he does include all those even who are cast out from others then we see the third event here in chapter 8 Jesus' inclusion of another crowd Jesus' inclusion of a yet another crowd many of us know this story we are actually it sounds very familiar right because we we're just a few weeks ago talking about the feeding of the 5,000 and uh, so we see the feeding of the 4,000 it doesn't surprise us but apparently as we go on it surprises the disciples I, the disciples just Hey, we've been talking about this. They just don't quite get it yet, but they're almost there. In just a few, in just a few uh, paragraphs, we're going to see that Peter finally is getting it. But for right now, Jesus feeds the 4,000. Remember where they are. This is not the same crowd as the 5,000 that was fed earlier. There could be some spillover, possibly the people who had been traveling with him. But what we see is Jesus tried to get away, so he would have got away from the old crowd, and now this is a new crowd. Now this, in Mark it says 4,000 people, in Matthew it says 4,000 men. It's probably 4,000 men, that's how they counted. So once again, just like with the 5,000, this would be 4,000 men plus their families. This is a lot, a lot of people. And most of them, if not at least half of them, you would think, being in a Gentile nation, are going to be Gentiles. The crowd of 4,000 men would have been largely Gentile. 
That's where they are. That's the region they're in. Now, there's surely some Jews there, but there's also going to be Gentiles there. And Jesus is going to show that he's going to do the same miracle he did for a crowd of Jews. He's going to do the same miracle for a crowd of Gentiles to show again that he's including all people, even those who are supposed to be shunned, even those who are the ones that should be stayed away from. Jesus is going to show that he is going to minister to them in the same way he ministered to the Jews. Because Jesus included people he didn't exclude them as the jews would want to do the jews wanted to exclude others jesus included them how do we know he included them well not only did the crowd just gather but what we're told here in verse 2 jesus has compassion on them because they have been with him for three days and have had nothing to eat three days this crowd has been following him we see in other gospels and as we put it together jesus has been healing and teaching for three days if he didn't include the gentiles in his plan if he wasn't looking out for people who uh, the jews said are outcasts and should be shunned then he wouldn't have taken three days to be with them but jesus understood how important it was to minister to these this crowd he's with them for three days he has taught and healed them for three days And now they find themselves hungry and Jesus has compassion. And he says they won't be able to get home if we don't feed them. And then one of the dumbest questions of all scripture, when the disciples look at him and say, "Uh, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Where have you been? I don't know, but I would say that this probably has, again, something to do with the fact that this is a different crowd. It was one thing for Jesus to feed a bunch of Jews But you're telling me you're going to be feeding not only Jews but Gentiles now? I don't know how this is going to work. But I will say this. They don't argue as much as they do the first time because then Jesus says, how many loaves? And I think once Jesus says, hey, how many loaves do you have? I just have this picture. And I know this is just me making things up. But I have this picture. All right, this is not scripture. Okay, this is a sidebar. So this picture, Jesus says, it comes. how many loaves do you have? Like just, how many loaves do you have, guys? I can, I, you just got to imagine the disciples are like, oh, yeah, okay, we got seven. I can't believe, like, okay, we're getting it now. Like, I, I, you know, he's, they've got to. Jesus is asking how many loaves. They say seven. He, he prays a blessing. They're broken up. He does the same thing with the fish. And the 4,000 men and their families are all fed to, their, to the point they are satisfied. Jesus satisfies their hunger and provides ample leftovers. You say, well, he only provided seven baskets this time. Uh, Man, he must be slipping. (laughs) Actually, the seven baskets, the word for basket is a different word than the basket that was used in the feeding of the 5,000. Whereas the basket in the feeding of the 5,000 was like a small basket, like a lunch basket you'd carry. The basket that is mentioned here is a man-sized basket. It's one of those huge baskets you would carry huge things in. There are seven huge baskets that are full of leftovers after Jesus is done. One commentator made this point, and I don't remember which one it was, but he said... You know, there's a good chance that maybe when Jesus was feeding the 5,000 and it was mostly Jews, there was 12 baskets left to kind of show the 12 tribes. And then, and then when we go to uh, the Gentiles, there's seven baskets. Well, the seven is a, is a fulfillment number. It's, a, it's, a, it's to make things perfect or complete. So Jesus might be pointing out the fact that the Gentiles now are being brought in and it's, the body of Christ can be complete. I don't know for sure. We're not told that for sure. That's an interesting thought. But what we do know is either way, Jesus is showing something very specific when he satisfies their hunger and provides leftovers in the same way he did for the 5,000 Jews. Jesus is showing that he cares not only for those who thought he was coming for them, 
but also for all those who are through the world. That Jesus would be a blessing to all the nations. This was actually given back to Abraham way back in Genesis, that his offspring would be a blessing to all the nations. And Jesus is that offspring, and he's bringing a blessing to all the nations, and he shows it to us even while he's still here. Many times we start thinking that the Gentiles didn't really start getting reached until the book of Acts. We do see a, a great growth of the, of the church in the book of Acts as it goes out into the Gentile world, no doubt. But Jesus himself was ministering to Gentiles long before the disciples did in Acts. It started then. Jesus was showing the fulfillment that he is the Messiah of the world because he's willing to include those who others are just trying to exclude. So as we think about these events and we think about Jesus being one who includes people, we have some questions to ask as I started with. First one is, do you feel like an outcast? Do you feel like there's no hope, there's, that people just don't want anything to do with you? Maybe you just feel that way because you know your own sin. And it's like, how can anybody stand to be around me? I'm not what I should be. Look to Jesus, the one who desires to include you in his family. See, if he didn't want to include you, even in the times where you feel outcast and lonely, then he wouldn't have come to live a perfect life that we've talked about every week. Live that life so that he'd be worthy of giving himself as a sacrifice by dying on the cross for your sin and my sin so that we didn't have to spend forever separated from him in hell, but he paid the penalty that we deserved in death and dying on the cross so that we can be with him forever because he wants to include us, because he loves us. He cares for us. And it's not just for good people. It's not just for bad people. It's for all people who will come to him and in faith receive him and repent of their sins. You see, Jesus doesn't say, well, only Jews can come to me or only Gentiles can come to me or only white people or only black people or only this type of person or only that type of person. No, Jesus says all people. All people come to me. That's what Jesus says. And he's showing that here in Mark chapter 7 and 8. The Bible is full of the rest of this. You think of Galatians, that there, we are all one in Jesus Christ. That's the point. Jesus wants to save you and include you because of his great love. And he showed that through his sacrifice. And he showed that through rising again and saying, look, sin and death that has ostracized you from me, sin and death that is making you feel lonely because you know you don't have a relationship with me, those things have been defeated. I, I have power over them. Come to me. I will include you and, and I love you so dearly that I will save you. Just come to me. Have faith in me. Believe in me. That's what Jesus says. So if you feel like an outcast, you feel lonely and you don't know Jesus, the reason you feel lonely is because you do not have a relationship with the God who created you and he wants to have that relationship back. Give your life to him. Now some questions for us who have given our life to Jesus, who have become Christians. Is our faith truly like the Gentile woman's faith? Persistent, willing to be humble and trust that Jesus will give us, even if he just gives us the crumbs that's all we need. So many of us forget how to truly trust Jesus. And we trust in ourselves or other people or other things. But just like the Gentile woman who knew that she had no right to be there, yet Jesus healed her daughter. 
We have no right to be there either. But Jesus has healed us out of his compassion, out of his love, out of his grace. So we need to trust him completely and not try to trust ourselves or other people. As I said earlier then, do we follow the example of Jesus? Do we reach out to others with compassion and understanding? Think about how he treated the deaf and mute man. He reached out to somebody in understanding and compassion. A man that everyone else would have walked by and said, you're not worth it. Jesus took the time to show care, compassion, and understanding with this man. Are we willing to do the same thing? Are there people that we are walking by daily that we turn our backs to or we turn our shoulder to or we ignore because they're not the type of person that we really want to be around? Maybe that's on the street. Maybe that's at work. Maybe that's even in your family. And God forbid, maybe it's even in this church. Jesus reached out to people, even the ones that were despised and outcast and that no one else had wanted anything else to do with. And this is not the first time. Remember the time he touched the leper. Jesus is willing to reach out to all people no matter what their background and no matter how dirty or how uh, outcast they are, he reaches out. Do we do the same thing? I know this is a convicting thing for me. I walk by so many people and we can get such a self-righteous attitude about, well, I'm so much better. And it goes back to the Pharisee thing. It's not even that I'm that much better, but just like, somebody else that is more like them they can reach out see Jesus didn't make exceptions and then finally do we trust Christ to provide for us even more than we can even imagine in Ephesians it tells us that if we truly trust Christ that he will do more than we can even imagine do we really trust that When he satisfies the hunger of the people, he provides leftovers to show that he not only provides, but he gives abundance. Remember from a few weeks ago when we talked about the feeding of the 5,000, the abundance that he gives is himself. And so therefore we have everything we need and more. He is willing to provide not only for our needs, but he is also going to shower us with blessings that we don't deserve. Do we trust that he's really that type of God? Or do we think still that we need to earn it? Or do we think that somehow he's not going to provide the way we want him to? We need to trust in Christ. The time now is to move on into communion. And the interesting thing as we move on in communion is this message that we just saw in the book of Mark is not just isolated from our remembrance of Christ's death. As we remember Christ's death, there's something I really want to think about. See, Jesus' body and blood were given for all. Not that everyone is going to be saved, because some people will choose to walk away, but he died to make it possible to have redemption. And this is not just, as I said, for one group of people or another group of people, but this is for all people. And the beautiful thing about his death is, as we remember it today, it's to show his inclusion of people. He was willing to give everything for Jews, Gentiles alike, slaves and free, man and woman. No matter what color, ethnicity, doesn't matter. Jesus died to save people. And we will remember that today. And then the cool part is that just like he shed his blood and broke his body for me, 
He shed his blood and broke his body for you. And really then, as we come to communion, we often take this and think, all right, I'm going to remember Jesus' death for me. He died for me. He broke his body for me. He shed his blood for me. And you know what? That's all true. But remember, his death not only saves us, but it unites us. You see, he didn't just die for you. He died for all of us. Those who come to know Jesus, we are all in the same body. And therefore, there is no distinction between us. Therefore, his sacrifice has given us all we need and has provided everything we need. And so today as we do communion, as we think about this, and I would say this, if you've come to know Jesus, we invite you to partake. If you know Jesus as your Savior, we invite you to partake in these elements. If you don't, we would ask you not to because this is a time in which we remember what Jesus has done for us and we remember it as a body of what he has done for us as a group. And don't just take this as about me. This is not only a time to remember what Jesus did for me, but to remember what Jesus did for us. That he has included us in his body and we are together in his body. That is the inclusion that his death brought. And so this morning as we come before this table, I would pray that we would consider his death, consider our lives and what might be in our lives right now that is not reflecting the inclusion and the death that he gave for us, that we are not living in a way that is worthy of the calling that he has called us to. And if there's anything in that, we need to repent. We need to to trust him to help us to change. And we need to remember that his death not only covered our sins then, but covers it now and covers it forever.